1: Welcome back to another episode of the O2 podcast, the Ohio Outdoors podcast. Uh, man, Paul, your buddy, I'm flying solo here, uh, this week, brother months is out and about working. It's my turn to hold down the fort here. I know it's been, uh, I've been hit or miss, uh, with this podcast here recently. I've been just, just really, uh, dialed into work, trying to, trying to get things done on that end. So thank you so much for listening to the show, uh, very excited that, that you are here lots of lots of neat things to talk about today um, the the intro here is new we are gonna run a, uh, a, a a greatest hits uh, episode if you will our buddy Doug Dern that episode was great we're gonna talk we're gonna we're gonna to listen to that again um, uh, here at the end of this intro so I do want to say thanks to our sponsors go wild time to go wild.com they got a ton of stuff for the bass angler out there great social community for hunters hikers anglers outdoor enthusiasts You've heard us talk about it. Great group of people. Sign up, get $10 off your first order. Uh, they have um, a really, a really just robust fishing, fishing selection of uh, of products for sale on their website right now. Rods, reels, tackle, bags, every type of lure that you can possibly imagine. Uh, it is available. Time to go wild.com. Check them out today. Midwestgunworks.com. Use the code Ohio outdoors five to save yourself five percent off of every order they're gonna be pretty good sale going on right now if you're looking to uh to upgrade your red dot or or your stock or foreign for your ar ar whatever uh whatever platform you got they've got all of it if you're looking for parts they got their parts finder you just put in your make your model hit go and it'll give you a breakdown of all the parts their youtube is phenomenal if you're cleaning a gun trying to fix something cameron does a really good job of breaking down um, firearms and showing you how to, how to properly break those down and, and, and reassemble those. So check that out. Uh, X vision If you're into killing, killing critters uh, at night, we've got coyotes. Uh, if, if you've seen a boar in the state of Ohio, please let us know. I'm very interested in that. But those are two animals that you can hunt uh, at night here in the state. Some really neat uh, options for for, uh, for the predator hunters out there. Uh, they do have some some pretty cool products, um, scopes, red dots, range finders, uh, things of that nature. So check out their website, uh, xvisionoptics.com. Shout out to uh, to our buddies at Redfin Polarize, uh, just redfinpolarize.com. I'm telling you, I've had Costas, I've had Oakleys. These are, without a doubt, the best sunglasses that I've ever owned. I bought the Tyvies, They're great. You're going to love them. Check them out. Their, their lenses are fantastic fantastic, really good price point on those two. So check them out. Thank you uh, for the support of our show. Oh man, our buddies from Wisconsin half rack.com Ohio outdoors 15, save yourself 15%. So I don't, I don't know who, who designs these, but on their website, half dash rack.com click on lifestyle. Their shirts are fantastic. They've got some really, some really funny shirts uh, for you to wear during the summer, non hunting lifestyle shirts. Check them out, Ohio Outdoors 15. Save yourself 15%. don't want to miss uh thanking our friends at first light uh really appreciate all you guys that that uh that tray system that that months has that thing's pretty sweet i like to pick one of those up so check them out firstlight.com. they got some cool kits on sale right now uh so just dive in there and uh and take a look so let's uh let's jump into the news i mean it's it's june in ohio obviously like either coyote hunting or You're not hunting or you're fishing or you're getting ready for deer season. Um, So it's a little slow in the news uh, territory. Sandhill crane numbers uh, have been rising over the last three years. Story from ODNR. 30 pre-selected counties were selected. Um, this was sponsored by the Ohio Department of Natural Resources, International Crane Foundation, and the Ohio Bird Conservation Initiative. It's good to see nesting pairs of sandhill cranes rising here uh, here in the state. Ribeye of the sky. Maybe at some point we'll have a, uh, a small hunting season for, for those guys. But at this point, you got to travel west for that. So this next story comes from OutdoorNews.com. This is an Ohio native, William Browning. Of Doylestown. Uh congratulations, William. He is working his tail off to become a member of the twenty 2024- twenty-four. United States Olympic trap shooting team, William. We wish you the absolute best. Please reach out; we'd love to chat with you. It uh, sounds like William is going to uh, to join the army. So, William, thank you for your uh, your heart of service and for all that you're doing for this country. Really appreciate uh, your efforts. Graduated from uh, Chippewa High School in 2022. So, what uh, what a fine young man that is. So, um, and and interesting. William started shooting trap at six years old. So, talk about impact. You know, stuff that we can do. With kids, our own kids, family, friends, getting youth involved in the outdoors, in the shooting sports, archery sports, all sorts of programs in the school to get kids active in the outdoors, you can really impact someone's life uh, just getting, getting a young person involved in the outdoors. So uh, great, great story there out of Doyle Sound William, good luck to you. Uh, interesting, obviously, near and dear to my heart, the uh, Ohio Department of Natural Resources is asking hunters, we do this every year, our turkey surveys. You can get on the Wild Ohio app you can, and, and, and report your surveys, your sightings. So the, the DNR is asking for uh, you to report sightings of, of gobblers, of jakes, of poults, of hens, the county that you saw them. Obviously, we've talked about um, turkey populations struggling, not just in this country, but all over the country. And this is one of the one of the tools that that our scientists our agency mark wiley and his crew in ohio state they use to determine what the wild turkey population is in the state so we need to really uh you know do our due diligence as hunters to go out and, and 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 look have fun. If you're out scouting for deer, you see some turkeys, boom, hop on the app, submit that sighting. You can also submit sightings of grouse, both uh, mature grouse and young grouse uh, within within that app. So so Mark and his staff are asking for uh, for reports of, of both of those of game birds. So that's obviously uh, a really important topic uh, to, to take a look at. So take care of it, right? Um, so muster in the marsh, M-U-S-T-E-R in the marsh.com, the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers Yearly Event in Conneaut at Covered Bridge Outfitters. You heard our buddy Henry talking about it last week. I was on my way to Missouri, so hopefully you guys could hear me talking. This is going to be a fantastic event. Workshops, education, kids and family event, camping, live music, campfire stories. We've got Cal from Meat Eater. We've got Kevin Murphy from Small Game Nation and Meat Eater are going to be there. A ton of of. of hunting and angling outdoors and conservation minded individuals all in one good place around a campfire on a river are you kidding me that sounds like one dang good time so check that out muster in the marsh three-day event you can buy your tickets there there is a friday the conservation dinner will be there this is really it's going to be a really neat event i'm glad uh that, that they asked us to be a part of it i'm, I'm honored to to do that so mushroom marsh can't wait to be Be there July 21st to the 22nd, 23rd, excuse me. So we've got, um, like I said, we've got Doug Dern coming up on today's episode. Andrew and I have been, we have been feverishly scheduling guests uh, for for our summer whitetail series. So we've got a couple habitat managers lined up. You're going to really enjoy that. Talk about what you as an Ohio hunter can do on your property right now. Um, Vegetation, food plots, forestry all of the things that you can do in july and august june july and august to get prepared for that deer hunting season that's going to be really neat we've got some summer scouting tips uh, from some really really good hunters uh, from the state and beyond to talk about um you know what you should be doing to scout that's something that i need to be better at uh, we got some public land some private land discussions coming up so a lot of really good stuff we're going to get back into uh into a groove back into a flow uh on this show so Thank you for all that uh, all of your support for us, for the for our sponsors. We really appreciate each and every one of you. Uh please enjoy this rerun. This I mean this this episode was probably one of one of my favorites. Uh if you listen to it back in in August of twenty twenty two, listen to it again. Doug Dern is just an amazing individual. I really enjoyed our time with him, uh and kind of his perspective on life. So uh no f- no more talking for me. You got Doug. Here.
0: No problem. So, Doug, I just got to start. Um, you know, I, I think you and I have a little bit of. We just were talking briefly before, but uh, the turfgrass world that we we live in. Um, okay, I'm going to back up one second. Let's let go ahead. I think probably most people know who you are, but if you want to give a quick rundown background on yourself, um, what you do. Uh, we'll talk more about some of your programs down the road, but like, uh, yeah, what's what's Doug's history?
2: Well, I'm an old man these days. I'm 63 years old. Um, big bald guy with glasses from Southwest Wisconsin. Um, and you hear that in my saying Wisconsin, right? The, um, I grew up in the area where I, I currently live, um, the Driftless area of Southwest Wisconsin. Um, I am a fifth generation person in this area, four generations on the the farm that I own with my brothers and sisters. Um, And, uh, you know, um, gee, I've been part of uh, the meat eater group for, I've known Steve, as we were talking about earlier, since before all this meat eater stuff happened, and we became, and I've been a part of that. I've been involved with conservation. Uh, Some of it sort of unknowingly, I didn't really put that word to it. Um, most of my life, because I grew up in a family of folks who were in the, the timber industry, the lumber industry, and we had this dairy farm and things like contour strip planting and managing forests and, or woods as we call them. And, you know, just doing good things for the land was just sort of second nature because the folks that were, um, raising me, you know, my grandfather and my father in terms of of working on the land, they um, had that mentality. And uh, it wasn't just about what we can get off of it now. It was, you know, it was a more thoughtful process like that. Um, And so I've been, you know, involved with conservation issues uh, for a while. Um, Some of them know me from my work with chronic wasting disease, and uh, that's pretty much my background. Uh, the only thing I, else I'd say is thanks for the notes that you sent me, and I guess what you'll have to decide is if we want to kind of quick hit all of the things that you sent, um, questions or, or, or subjects, if you want to quick hit them all or if we want to deep dive into one of them. I guess we'll see how it goes. I,
1: I want to start the, the first question that I have, and I'm, I'm going to jump in here real quick. And and this is a very, very popular term nowadays. And I think a lot of people on social media put it in their, their profile and it makes them feel warm and fuzzy. And it's it, you've already said a conservationist. So what is your definition of a conservationist? Because I, I hold the definition of a conservationist in high high regard. I mean, those are, to me, it's people that have their hands in the dirt, so to speak, when it comes to wildlife management. So I, I don't. I think that's rarefied air for me. So that's just me personally. What's your definition of a conservationist?
2: It's funny that you say that because as I was sort of, I think I said before, it's like, I didn't even know what that word meant really when I was younger. Um, In fact, my, my uncle Larry Duran, who was a really funny guy used to talk about conservationists and um, environmentalists. And he'd always say it in those sort of terms, you know,
1: like separating the two, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, and and then the one you can always add in there too is preservationists and, and conservationists. Preservationists are very different. Um, <laughs> my definition of a, definitions of a of a conservationist is one who's in the present, thinking about what's happened in the past, and 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 learning from that. Working, thinking, and working in the present with an eye towards the future. And that's not just with wildlife. It's it's more importantly, I think, with the land. Here's a great example of something I also think gets a little um backwards sometimes. Hunting is conservation. And I always take a big breath and go, Well, maybe. Hunting is extraction, right? So when we're hunting, we're taking something from the land. My question is, is what's the land get out of that? And in some cases, the land gets something out of it. If you have overpopulated deer herd and you're taking deer out, the land, the ecosystem is getting something out of that, right? So you're reducing the amount of animals on the landscape and it's going to be better for the, it's going to be better for the land. Um, Where I like to think that conservation is the big picture and hunting is a part of that. Does that make sense? It does. Just I, a just a, a, a tool, if you will, I guess. I agree 100% on that. Yeah. So my
0: f- first question, I have to get this out of the way. And We were talking earlier. Kind of my job is to, um, you know, I have a, a bachelor's is in horticulture, and my master's is in turf grass. Now I'm in, in the world of sales where I sell grass seed, I sell herbicides, fungicides, fertilizers, some of these icky, nasty things that are not supposed to be good for the environment. And... I struggle sometimes like internally that this is how I feed my family. But at the same time, I have, uh, you know, this platform with Paul to talk about, and we are big conservation in the conservation. We love that idea. We love the idea of, you know, the wildlife and, and biodiversity and all this kind of stuff. And here I am selling essentially monocultures for people's front yards and that kind of stuff. You've done work with athletic fields in the past and currently, but and, and there's you know I think that there are times you have to use a herbicide. like Roundup gets a really bad rap, but there are times where you we don't really have anything else to use that's going to do that job um, to get that taken care of. And now we could talk all day long about the benefits of, of grass and, and, and turf grasses. And and that kind of stuff, but I'm just curious what your kind of thought process is because I do I struggle with that on on a daily basis and and it's it's deeper than that it, when I'm driving down the road and they have just cleared out a woodlot and you know it's going to become a housing development that I know I probably sell grassy to so that will help me, but at the same time like there's more habitat that's gone so it's it's a double edged sword right?
2: Oh boy, <laughs> I wasn't I guess I wasn't really expecting that one, but yeah i will say this about that to my mind um good turf grass belongs on athletic fields and we are going to do everything we can to make that turf grass and those athletic fields safe and playable um my on i don't i do a little bit of overseeding but i don't treat it with herbicides on treat it with any kind of pesticide. Um, I'd mow it high. Um, I'm not a fan of the obsession, sorry, but I'm not a fan of the obsession with the turf, with the bluegrass lawn. Um, It seems like um, in a lot of ways, a waste of resources. So that's one part of it. The other part of it is when we're, when I'm managing turf grass fields, um, we do it, and, and you certainly know this term, integrated pest management. So we're constantly paying attention to what those fields, what kind of shape those fields in are in, um, and planning and uh, adapting as needed when we manage them. Um, and as I was telling you before, we, we started recording, I mean, I've been doing this long enough, but that stuff that I abandoned years ago, I'm starting to use again, like a sand top dressing to protect the root crowns and make that field more safe and more playable. Um, So I think that as long as we are making thoughtful choices um, about what we're doing, that that's the, that's the, you know, the end of it. I mean, we could talk about agriculture for a long time. I mean, you go by, uh, you got drive around in the country out here right now in, in the driftless area, which is very um, um, varied topography, uh, a lot of slopes. And so we have a lot of contour strip planting, or at least we did when I was younger. Now there's a lot more stem to stern planting and there's a lot of fence rows gone. And that's because of commodity work right on our farm. Grounding farms, it used to be pretty much everything that you produced on your farm went into the animals that you produced to produce the milk or to produce the meat, and maybe you sold a little bit extra. But now, um, man, most of the land around here is corn and beans, and it ain't good corn and bean ground. You know, it's a lot of small uh, plots, and that's and that sort of thing. But then I look at those um, fields, and you know, I'm, I don't want to disparage anybody here, brothers and sisters, but um, that idea of monoculture row cropping in the long term, I don't know if that's the, the best policy um, because of what it does to the soil, because of what it's doing to, to everything else. And I also have seen that be the big part of the downfall of the economy of our area it used to be a lot of small farms. Small dairy farms, self-sustaining, you know, neighbors, helping neighbors kind of stuff. And now it's just very rare to have a small dairy farm or something like that. Um, at the same time, change is inevitable. And the economy changes, people change. There's a lot of benefits to to all of these things, too. So I think we're always trying to achieve that balance. And I think as long as we're thoughtful about it and making decisions, you um, with our eyes wide open that, you know, we'll get to up to a good place. And I, I, am happy to hear that, you know, you're being thoughtful about, about what you're doing. I get it, man.
0: Well, it's funny. um, And Paul could tell you my, we talked about this in one of the emails or something before we uh, got this set up. One time I heard, in in, I think my landscape design class in college that, you know, you should treat a lawn like a rug and not a carpet. So kind of around your home that has a functional purpose for kids to, Play and the dog, and you know, reduce pests. You know, they talk about ticks being the worst in the high grass and stuff. So, uh, Doug, it's it's if I was the president of the Ohio Turfgrass Foundation a couple years ago, and uh, I got a letter one day in the mail. Uh, we just bought a new house, and and I decided to do this rug versus carpet thing. And a lot of the grass around the outside of the um property had just kind of gone high. Well, one of my neighbors didn't appreciate that, so they had sent a letter or called the what township township auditor or something. And we're out in the country, but uh, so she had come and basically told me if I don't mow it, they're going to come mow it. And I, so I had to call her and explain that. Well, I'm, I kind of am the president of this group that oversees grass management for the entire state of Ohio. She's like, (laughs) Oh yeah, I did realize up close to the house. It looked nice. I I didn't quite understand what you were doing, but now it makes sense. So um, anywho, I think I love the idea you put in there with the IPM, the integrated pest management, the idea of putting together a program, Trying to do things the best way that you can, reevaluate, try again the next year. However, that needs to be using different men- mentalities, methods, cultural practices. It's not just you know spray, you know get your sprayer out and just keep spraying nonstop. But it's a balance of, of different things.
2: It really is, and, and I you use that term that I I like an awful lot, and that's cultural practices. You know, um, uh, turf grass uh, loves aeration. It likes water especially bluegrass likes water and i applaud the industry for you know working on developing um varieties that use less water and you know turf type fescues which we're using on non-irrigated fields and and all of those things i mean the point right as opposed to maybe in the industry it's like well the money's in fertilizing and herbicide and they're running through a neighborhood spreading fertilizer and spraying herbicide. And I get it, you know, that's where the money is, but I don't know if that's the, the best thing for, uh, you know, for the environment. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I could rant about that stuff, but I I just think that if we're doing, if we're being thoughtful about it, I really liked your rug analogy because that idea that, I mean, I've, fair amount of turf, uh, of, of lawn, we call it turf grass, uh, lawn here around our place, but we're also right on Lee Lake. I mean, I step out the door here and hit the, without even tossing underhand, hit the lake. Um, we have 125 feet of lake frontage. So we have a buffer zone, of uh, pollinator habitat and taller grasses. Uh, th- so I'm careful about what I'm on, on the, because it's going directly into the water. Right. right. And then the other part of it is, um, I've also done a lot of naturalization and restoration in my landscape career, and so you know the 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 tall fescues, the nomo fescues, that kind of stuff, where people don't have to mow it all the time, but yet you have, you know, turf grass uh, uh, is you know is a good way to go, and 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 then I've just I'm just a big fan of short grass prairies and tall grass prairies and that kind of stuff, but it's, everything's got its place and um i've actually used the rug not a carpet uh, analogy before so thanks for that good well i'm sure that the three listeners that we
0: have that care about uh, turf grass are are now <laughs> fully satisfied
1: we know who you are <laughs> <laughs> but the uh we got a couple superintendents and athletic field managers that uh that tune in every week so oh great yeah. great
2: and you know i i hope i don't come across as a know-it-all with all that it's just a lot of um out of experience. And, and uh, if I've learned one thing in conservation uh, and turf grass is, a, you know, is a great example of that. I mean, I have an earth science background and I've taken a couple of short courses in turf grass and years of experience with it and growing up on a farm and that being farming. But I'll tell you what, we were talking about uh, Wayne Horman a little bit uh, ago and, you know, and experts in the field. I'll, I mean, those are the first people I call, you know, my suppliers, you know, they have people who have dedicated their lives to this, uh, I, those are the people I want to hear from. And I don't care what it is in conservation. I, I'm i a generalist kind of in life, right? And uh, one of the things I've learned is I don't need to know everything. I just need to be able to find people who know more. Yes,
1: exactly. I love that. I love that. Um, I, 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 I want to just touch on one thing that you said in an email. And it was, my opinions are mine and they're also subject to change. And I really like that. I've, I've been kind of going through this. Evolution, um, just personally about you know, I same thing. I was in the turf grass industry for 15 years. I was on golf courses, private, public, high end places. Um, so you're talking about just a ton of input, manicured, and then my my mindset just started to shift just just recently within the last 18 months about conservation and ecosystems, and just kind of instead of you know literally what's in front of me, my my grass, my golf course, whatever it is, um, to more big picture. Like I said, ecosystems, wildlife interactions, pollinators, all these things. I think that's a very personal journey for a lot of people. You've really just gone down the rabbit hole, it sounds like, in a good way uh, with kind of your evolution of conservation, uh, you know, ecosystems, man- you manage the land. I, I heard you talk one time in a podcast. It was you, know, you stopped managing for big deer and started managing for overall land health, which equates to better deer health. So just talk about like your evolution, where you started. I mean, how long you've been hunting? I thought I heard you say one time this, you just finished up your 50th year as a hunter.
2: And so that's
1: right. I mean, that's, that's, I mean, that's, that's fantastic. So, I mean, there must've been just, just massive mindset changes for you personally. Um, and I know that's a loaded topic and we could talk for hours about that, but when was kind of like your transition from, okay, I'm managing for big deer on my farm, big bucks and all the things that come with that to good land management stewardship, if you will.
2: Yeah. Well, I think the stewardship has always been there. Uh, and our, our uh, commitment to big buck, big giant buck management um, wasn't, uh, it wasn't a real uh, uh, devout one, I guess is I'll put it. Uh we and some of that has to do with my dad when i was a kid when i was 15 you know, when i was 12 or 10 or 12 and 12 was when you could start hunting here in wisconsin or or you could you know you could deer hunt um and we certainly went with him before that for small game and that kind of stuff you saw a deer with an antler on it shot it and because you got one buck tag and uh you in those days if you wanted to get a doe tag four hunters had to get together and uh apply together for what was called a party tag. And you would apply, you'd fill out this stuff, and everything was done by, you know, on paper in those days. And you send it in with 20 bucks or whatever it was.
0: I think Pennsylvania and, still does it that way. By... <laughs> well,
2: <laughs> well I'm <not> gonna... anyway, <laughs> I, I don't know enough about Pennsylvania's issues. I do know they have some CWD issues, and I scratch my head about how they're approaching those there. But, um, uh but anyway sorry. so you had to yeah, yeah sorry but so you had to apply And this is just a great example right so four people had to apply for a party tag and you'd get this cool little armband that you know that person wearing the armband is the only one who could shoot the the doe and uh and so you got one doe for four hunters in my county now you get a buck tag and you're immediately issued four antlerless tags For each weapon. So I'm a conservation patrons holder, license holder. So I get a buck tag for bow hunting. I get a buck tag for gun hunting. And I get four antlerless tags with each one of those license, which can be applied. So I can actually shoot eight uh, antlerless deer with my gun. So you can use the, you can only use the buck tag with the, with the, with the weapon, but the doe tags can go to anything. Oh, wow. Um, So in 50 years, um, that's been the big the big change is just the, the man white-tailed deer by the state of Wisconsin has been a huge success story to the point where people got used to this incredible amount of deer, which weren't necessarily good for the ecosystem. Oh, and then guess what? We end up with this disease that spreads more quickly through a bigger population. And it's hard to put the brakes on that. You know, especially in an area, I'm not answering your question, but especially in an area where um, 85% of our area is deer habitat and the deer are incredibly fecund. You know, we have 1.5 um, fawns for every doe and, you know, a doe you know, lives to be four years old. I mean, you can do the math there really quick. She's replaced herself six times um, or or more. Um, she's having, I mean, it depends on the individual dope or, but anyway, um, so that's, I mean, that's the, that was, that's one of the changes that's happened. And that's been a part of my evolution in it. Right. And as I said, when, when I was a kid and we went deer hunting, you shot an antler, ant, you saw an antler deer, you shot it. Well, then over time, it's sort of like, well, gee, it's kind of cool. when it's not just a one antler thing, which was my first buck, by the way. And, um, and then, or a forky or something like that. It's kind of cool when it's something that's bigger than that. And then I shoot this big, giant 192-inch buck in 2005. And, boy, I'd be like, it's cool to have more of that, (laughs) you know. But uh, so we were, what happened was we started, um, again, think about, let me go back to the forestry thing. So my family was in, 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 we have our farm is 400 acres, but 240 acres of its woods, 60 acres pasture, 100 tillable. That 240 acres of woods have been managed by four generations. Over time, that management changed too because you know it used to go like that, and now it goes like this. Um, you learn, um, but some really good, solid foundational stuff. And um, uh, part of the management of that woodland is well, wait a minute, if we have too many deer, we're not getting uh regeneration of oaks because there's too many deer and we had a neighbor who shot he had egg tags because he was having egg damage and shot like 22 or 23 and they had to be antlerless deer as i recall um post-season uh man that's got to be late 90s early 2000s and the next year all of a sudden we got really nicer bucks And so, you know, the light goes on as a part on the buck end of it. Okay. We have, we were thinking about the wood end of woods end of it. And then the buck end of it. Well, gee, if we kill more does. um, And we keep that population in check, it seems like we see more bucks and there's a lot of different reasons for that, or we see bigger bucks or whatever. And I think some of the reasons for that is if you have fewer does, the bigger bucks aren't just laying around waiting for them to come to them. They're out pursuing them. So that's a part of it. Right. And then the other part of it, if you're concentrating Uh, making sure that you're taking does and keeping that population in check. Um, There, there's less competition, less stress, you know, all that for food, all those kinds of things. And then suddenly you're getting, um, but it was never like, Oh, you, you can't, if you shoot a younger buck, you're a son of a bitch or something like that. And, you know, and then you go through a whole process with that. And, um, it really started with shooting you know taking antlerless deer and doing what was best for the the land but that evolution conservation wise is really having learned from people who um intuitively my dad my grandfather um and and you know through uw extension and that sort of thing came out and they laid out contour strips and you saw okay well why are you doing that and they go well oh, because it's less erosion oh um you know, and all those, I mean, you see when, if if you're doing something and you see damage from it, if you have any concern about that at all, you're going to kind of back up. So that's, you know, time is, I think if you don't evolve over time that, 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 um, you're not paying attention and, and yeah, I reserve the right to change my mind about things. You know, I, um, and some might call that flip-flopping, but, um, when I really made the decision about attacking, uh, and doing more about CWD, it was really um, born out of the idea that I do want to be able to call myself a conservationist, and if I'm going to do that, I need to do what's best for the resource, not uh, not just what's best for me. I definitely want to touch on the CWD
1: uh, it, it, during this talk. Um, the, your kind of your 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 mantra is: "It's not ours; it's just our time or our turn, if you will." Right. So I actually messaged you on Instagram, and you responded. The first time that I had heard that mantra was was earlier this year, and just a a, a real quick story. I heard that. Are you going to tell them the story about where we went and got that tattooed on our lower back? <laughs> no, no, we, no, we're not. Uh, we're still waiting. We're. Yeah, I'm waiting for that, man. Yeah. I, I wait. yeah. So I was on a I was on a turkey hunt this year uh, in the state of Alabama, and it was my first time in Alabama, and uh, a really really neat piece of property been in this family for i don't know 40 or 50 years at this point and 15 to 1700 acres so it's a really nice piece of property and and the family had done just a ton of work um you know doing the right things to manage the land and they're just just a really good family they're really in tune with you know doing the things that are necessary uh, for the, for the land, so it, just an interesting story. Right before we had gotten there, you know, maybe in January or sometime, there they had done some clear cutting, and they found the gravesite of the family that had settled this farm, eighteen eighteen forties, eighteen fifties, sometime in, the, in wow. that point. And it oh was just, gosh. it was just, it was really neat. So the, so the landowner took us up there during this Turkey hunt and he, and he wanted to talk about these people and I'm standing there. I mean, and this is, this is above ground stone. I'll send you a picture of a stone, uh, you know, grave site with a giant slab of granite or marble, whatever the stone is in Alabama sitting on top of this. And there's three of them and and the names are carved on this, on the stone. So he's talking about these families and I look down, I'm standing on and I'm not a farmer, but I'm standing on just a, a, a one of the tines that they would use to plow this dirt. And I'm, I'm stepping on it as I'm looking at these people. And I picked that up and that like that just rang in my head. I, I mean, it floored me and I asked the landowner if I could take that piece and I have it sitting in my office and I look at it every day when I walk by it and that just, it's not ours. It's just our turn. And that was one of those moments where that solidified in my head for the rest of my life that none of the, like, we, we don't own anything. We're just here to take care of it at this time. And I think it's a very important lesson so that was kind of a long introduction to talk about that. Talk about it's not ours. It's just our turn.
2: Uh, man, I don't know if I can say any more about it than what you just did. You can,
1: because you went through it, man, you've been through it. I want to hear your perspective because I know it's better than that.
2: Well, so our farm has been in my family for, uh, uh, it's close enough that I can call it 120 years. And, uh, as I said, it was managed, the woodland was managed pretty well. My great-grandfather, actually my great-great-grandfather and great-grandfather had a sawmill um, on Durin Road about a mile from our farm. And to this day, I don't know because they're not around anymore. To, I, I don't know whether one day they were driving around and, or going around in their buggy or whatever and saw this sign that said Duran Road and said, well, gee, maybe we ought to put our sawmill over there or if the, road got named after the sawmill. I, I'm not sure what happened there, but anyway, that's a little rural humor. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm the chicken and egg theory here is what we're talking about. Right? So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and so they bought this land because it had a bunch of timber on it and to feed that sawmill that was a mile away. And interestingly enough, at least to me, in four generations, I was the first Duran to live on that farm. I grew up with that farm, not on that farm. So we grew up in Casanova, the town that I'm I'm sitting in right now. And uh, uh, we didn't have to do chores in the morning and, and we didn't really have to do chores in the evening either. We did all of the field work. We did all the fence fixing. And then we, the guy who milked cows out there, we gave him every other weekend off and we had to milk cows. And then over time, we, my brother's, and I ended up taking that over for a while until we quit uh, dairy farming in 1988. But, uh, I always like to say the difference between growing up on a farm and growing up with a farm is that you don't smell like cow shit when you get on the bus. <laughs> but, um,
1: also uh, rural humor, right?
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm sure there's some listeners that are going, uh, that's damn right.
2: <laughs> <It's> <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, for sure. I mean, I am not disparaging anybody. Yeah. I just remember going, Oh yeah. (laughs) Anyway, anyway, uh, the the stuff you remember, man, the stuff you remember, and that is all part of that journey too. Um, So we were managing our part of our woodland that had not been uh, cut in 120 years. There had been some work done in there. Well, my great grandfather, grandparents, I should say, bought that land. It was little oak saplings. 115 years later, because we finished that on um, this 35 acres of 240 acres of woods, we did a shelterwood harvest, and the idea was that we're trying to regenerate oaks in there. Well, <clears throat> when uh, this was during the time that my dad was kind of handing off the management to me, he died um, five years ago now, and so we were doing this forestry planning and and talking with experts and you know, about here's, here's the, some of the things that you can do, right. And there are multiple things that different trails you can go down. And I, uh, one of the other things that I like to, to, to say is it seemed like a good idea at the time, you know? Um, and because sometimes you make mistakes and you, as long as you're making an informed uh, decision and then you make work out, you go, wow, it seemed like a good idea at the time. And then maybe that's where you adapt and change anyway. We were doing this uh, shelterwood harvest, which is a technique of for regenerating oaks, which can be really difficult, especially um, because because of deer, but um, but also because of what oaks need in order to regenerate. I'm up there working with this uh, forester from the Department of Natural Resources, who's become a very good friend of mine now, and uh, we were walking. We were walking off the ridge, and what we had done was gone up and evaluated how it had been marked by the consulting forester that we used, and then what our how that matched with our goals and objectives, and the and the the plan that we had in place, and all of that. But a shelterwood harvest is a damn aggressive way of going in. I mean, and you're you're really well. My dad, this is a great example. My dad said to me, Douglas, I know this needed to be done. I just didn't want to be the one to do it. And part of that was, well, my dad was 92 when he died. But what we were doing was was trying to regenerate oaks, but also capture the peak. I mean, an oak will live to be a couple hundred years old, but they aren't all going to live to be that long. And we were seeing trees starting to fall because of the you know the age and the and you're losing economic value. So it goes back to that thing we said before, right? We're trying to balance all this different stuff. Anyway, Mike and I, Mike Finley's his name, we're walking off of the um, it's up on this ridge, and we're walking down off of there. And we stopped and, and paused for a minute, <clears throat> probably let me catch my breath. And uh, he, you know, was sort of applauding the fact that we were doing this. And you know, it's, he says this isn't this is aggressive and this is hard. And I know a lot of people like to hold their woods right where it is. And you know, you can't really do that. No man, no no plan and no management is a strategy. It's probably just not a b- really good one. But anyway, he said, I really applaud that your family is willing. Really- And, you know, in that moment, I, you know, it's, I mean, it was was an epiphany moment. And um, I was thinking about my great grandparents, my grandparents, and my parents. My parents were both alive yet at that time. They're both gone now. And the fact that um, all of this had, work had been done and this, you know, and this land was still in our family. And that's when I just said out loud, well, I guess it's not ours. It's just our turn. And Mike looked at me and said, you got to write that down. (laughs) And I did. And, um, but that really is it, right? I mean, one of the the other moments that I have more regularly now as I'm getting older, and when I think about my dad being gone now, uh, because I spent a lot of time out there with him, is that um, I tip over right now, everything that's out there is still there. And, you know, it's that, that understanding of that is that you're just here for this time. And that, 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 that length of time that, that that's been in our family, that land has been in my family, it's a little easier, was a little easier step for me, I think, as opposed to, you know, somebody younger or not having that experience or that um, family history, looking at it and going, well, what can I get out of this? Because that's, that's human nature too, right? I mean, it's like, what's in this for me, or I've got to make this land work for me. Well, I'm in a position, I don't have to make that farm work for us. All it has to be is financially viable, as opposed to someone who owns a piece of property and is trying to pay it off and and doing all that. And man, they're looking to maximize. And I can understand that and the need for that, right? But at the same time, there's an opportunity to balance all of those things as well. So- that's where it kind of comes from, and that's. Um, I'm, I'm
0: glad you wrote like that, that down. We'll send you pictures when we get those tattoos. So
2: <laughs> I can't wait.
0: <laughs> now, um, real quick, I just want the CWD, it can be a hot topic, whatever. Um, I just want to touch briefly on it, and I don't want to get really deep on it. But uh, in Ohio, we have a, a small area where um, in, in like a three-county area, DSA, three county or DSA yeah. they're modifying some of the bag. Uh, dates limits all that kind of stuff
1: season opens two weeks earlier There's an early gun
0: season yeah what are some of the and i don't know how uh familiar you are with what ohio has done to slow this i think i don't know you'll ever stop it but slow it is there anything from somebody who's dealt with it for a while that you could give a couple bullet points of what we should expect or look for or do to make sure we're doing things the right way down here
2: The hardest part is that if the control measures, as they will, depending on what they are, and and no, I haven't really looked at what Ohio is doing yet, but my guess is that they've learned the lessons of Wisconsin, um, as many states have, and they're being pretty aggressive about it, because when Wisconsin was aggressive about it, the disease was confined to an area. And the prevalence was low. As soon as we stopped doing the area grew and the prevalence grew along with it. So I'll sum that up. in I like to think in bumper stickers, I guess. Um, sometimes people, you know, it's easier to remember things. It's not ours. It's just our turn. Um, if you don't have it, if you don't have CWD, you don't want it. i tell you that. And if you do have it, you want as little as possible. So act accordingly. The pushback on some of that from some from some from some folks was well, we did all this work at, at doing it, and it we didn't have any issues. It didn't seem to be spreading. We didn't have any. What's the big deal? And then, uh, really starting in about 2007, because it was discovered in 2002, and for about five years it went on. The the, the there was sharpshooting, earn a buck. Um, really working at keeping it in that area. And I'll be honest, if I'd have been in that CWD hot zone, my farm would have been there. I'd have had a hell of a lot of questions about what are we doing exactly and why? Um, 20 years ago, we've learned a heck of a lot in 20 years about it. Um, And as soon as we started to do less through political pressure, not because that was what the biologists wanted to do, uh, political pressure, and then things changed that prevalence grew and the disease has spread in 2002. Um, I mean, when they were testing in 2002 up until, I told you I killed the standard in 2000 or that what's the only deer we've ever named on our farm is the standard is the standard by which all deer going forward will be judged by the big one that I shot. Um, I actually shot that deer with a rifle on October 31st and our normal gun season doesn't start until the third week in November. Um, I shot him at 35 yards with a 30 Oh six. I mean, if I'd have been there with a bow, I'd have killed him too, but he was real dead when I shot him with that <laughs> rifle. Um, didn't get 20. It, yeah. It wasn't doing any, you No, know, getting freaked out or anything like that. And, um, anyway, we didn't have CWD on our farm until, uh, well, it's been five years now. Uh, and we were testing first, whatever they would let us test. And then when it got to the point where testing was completely voluntary, you could get every deer tested. Um, and we've been doing that for, uh, six years now we went from zero to one to five and four years of 120 deer killed. So about, I don't know, do the math for me, 4% to last year where we had, I wrote it down. Um, in adult deer, we had 35% of the deer uh, tested positive. At, of 10 antlered bucks last year, six of them tested positive. One oh, wow. of them was a five and a half year old 10 pointer that uh, he, if you go back in my Instagram stories, you can see this. He stood in the middle of the driveway and looked at me like he had no idea what I was. And I got to take great pictures of him. He looked healthy and everything, but he just had a look on his face of, it was just blank yeah. a adult buck. Doesn't do that in the middle of October. He doesn't do it anytime. Right. And he ended up going down to the Creek and just getting a drink of water. And I mean, I watched him for a long time thinking to myself, wow, that's really cool. Where's the dough that he's tending? Well, he wasn't. tending, And he ended up, a buddy of mine ended up killing him a couple of weeks later. And, uh, and I said, uh, you know, PWD positive. Let's see. And, and he, sure enough, he was, um, and then, uh, 10% of the adult dose. So we killed 40 deer on our farm, um, on the 600 acres that we, that I hunt and manage. Some of it's our farm. Some of it's the place next door. We killed 40 deer in an area where, um, uh, we, 65 deer per square mile. So if that's the case, we killed two thirds of the deer in that square mile of habitat. And, uh, three weeks after the season, we did a drone, uh, survey and a drive around and we counted 85 deer. So, so you're not 60- seeing
1: an impact, a detrimental impact to the herd population. I mean, if, you, if you're, that's a, that's a, that's an incredible stat.
2: Yeah, no, it, it, that is interesting, isn't it? Yeah. So there, there are, are, are different ways of looking at chronic waste disease. One of them is, well, what's the big deal, right? It's not having a population level impact. Um, in, in Doug's area, now, you can go down in Iowa County and anecdotally which is south of us from where it started um, one of the counties where it was first discovered and uh, I was just on a piece of property down there recently and uh, looking uh, with working with the landowner and the sharing land thing that I'd like to talk about a little bit too but and i and i I just didn't see deer sign like what you do on our place in our area um, remember that eighty five percent of the county is in the area really is deer habitat but 95% of it is privately owned so that's that's can both be a benefit and a detriment to um management right so anyway but i'm looking around hunters i mean it's part of why they're interested in sharing the lands they have any other hunters on i was like how what's a deer population around and, you know looking like around here oh we get some on the cameras that we have out and but I just didn't see signs of a lot of deer. Um, I talked to a uh, fellow who was a part of a lease very near that property. I mean, in the same watershed and actually really close to it, they gave up their lease because every deer, they, sh- every buck, I'm sorry, every buck they shot antler buck, they shot in the last three years tested positive for CWD every buck they tested. So they're given that lease up. Even though they were still seeing plenty of deer, and he said the other part of it is we don't see four and five year old deer bucks anymore. Now think about that. Okay, so deer, as I told you before, they're very fecund. I love using that word. And I learned it from Ronella. Um, So you you know this high, we're not going to run out of deer because they're, they reproduce so well. We're going to run out of white-tailed deer, folks, and CWD isn't going to run us out of white-tailed deer either. What is going to happen, though, is because it's a disease that takes two years to kill a deer, as prevalence increases, your herd is going to trend younger and younger. Um, there's a uh, a friend of mine, landowner, a guy who's become a friend of mine, landowner south of us here, runs about 900 acres, owns about 900 acres. He originally bought it, you know, kept putting these pieces of land together for deer management, and it's got farmland on it and everything, too, and about... Four years ago, he gave, came to our uh, County Deer Advisory Council meeting, and that's I'm on that county um, council, and we helped to um, shape deer management as uh, to a certain degree for our county. And he came in and said, we have to do something about CWD. Let me tell you my story. And he they used to kill four- and five-year-old bucks. And four years ago, they started finding them dead in the woods. And now, you know, and, and and it was a sad story to listen to him. I mean, part of the reason I did this was so that we could manage for that. And the last time I talked to Mike, he said, you know what the cool thing has happened? Here's what CWD has given us. I mean, you want know, am talk about a guy who can look for a silver lining. Um, he said, we've just become deer hunters again. I don't have any restrictions on what deer anybody can shoot. Um, we do have a, they have a skunk hat that you have to wear if you, uh, if you uh, take more than one shot to kill a deer or if you miss, I guess, I don't remember exactly what it is, but his point is that we're really focusing on good marksmanship and that sort of thing. All the deer get tested and they're still running positive rates about 65 to 70% of the bucks that they kill tested and they're younger bucks. So even though, I mean, a doe, let's say, and they've had fawns test positive there, by the way, as have some people South of me, that's not happening in our place. Although we've had year and a half old bucks, and you're gonna have all dose test positive. Depending on when that shows up and what the stage are in the disease, a doe can still replace herself two or three times before she would succumb to the disease, right? So you're gonna—I mean—you can see where you would keep producing deer, but that herd is gonna keep trending younger and younger. And then, logically, it makes sense that you get to a tipping point in prevalence that um, you're gonna end up having a population. Uh, concerns. And there are some studies out there where there is showing that there are um, population uh, uh, impacts um, as a result of, of CWD. So we're trying to avoid that, right? Yeah. Well, that's,
0: that's good insight from somebody who's been on the front lines.
2: So I just, just real quick on
1: your farm personally, have you seen one of the, one of the um, things that's real popular on social media is, well, there's no pictures of deer with CWD. You know, you want me to it's, and, and, and that's, that's exactly right. So you start digging, you see him, but people kind of equate uh, CWD to e- EHD and EHD is just devastating. you find them in your ponds. And so people are, you know, I think overall the, the perception is well EHD is worse. And the reality is that's kind of a blip in the pan for a year or two. And then it moves on and, um, and uh, nature kind of stabilizes itself. CWD, uh, I, I, I think uh, it's definitely one of those things that is, there's a larger impact over a greater time. You're talking, you've been dealing with it for 25 plus years at this point uh, in Wisconsin. So, what are some of the things that you've seen on your farm personally, other than the buck that, that you saw? I mean, have you seen just kind of those? And what I'm looking for is those horror stories that people were always digging around looking for. Deer drooling so, and you know falling over. That's what people want, right? That's I mean, and I'm not saying that's what I'm looking for, but people don't believe things if it's just CWD is almost perceived as like a boogeyman in the woods that kills a deer every once in a while.
2: Yeah, well, I get calls on a regular basis in the fall when people are in the woods. Hey, I found this deer. What do you think? And what I usually say is, well, there's a, looks like it had a problem. Um, It's either dead or it's dying. And uh, so what do I do? Well, call the warden. They'll let you put it down and then get its head cut off and get it tested because that's the only way you know. I mean, there's other reasons that deer look sick, right? Yes, I've had sick looking deer on cameras. Um, I have not had one stumbling through the woods, you know, on its last legs. Like, as I said, that big 10 pointer looked perfectly healthy. He just didn't act perfectly healthy. And that's a part of the of the, the process of the, of the disease as well. Right. That um, it's just like creutzfeldt jakobs or dementia or whatever you want to call him. I mean, creutzfeldt jakobs disease in us is the prion disease, the equivalent of CWD in deer. And there's nothing seems to be wrong for a while. And then suddenly it's like, eh, I can't remember anything, which might be a function of age too. But, um, but it, you know, things start to happen. And then all of a sudden, the wasting part of it ends, you know, ends up happening and having had um, um, relatives and uh, in-laws who um, succumbed to uh, Alzheimer's and, and uh, it wasn't graceful, the occupus, but it's very similar dementia. Um, that is not a, that is not a pretty sight. And that's one of the things about it. Last year when we were doing our dough derby and you can see that, on, you can see this on my Instagram and I think I've posted it at least twice um a friend of mine was hunting south of us so we had a doe derby going during the four-day antlerless hunt where we were you know having a not a contest but a drawing if you brought in your deer you you killed an antlerless deer you lopped its head off you you know we got it tested you got an entry into a, a drawing so we were encouraging both the taking of antlerless deer and the testing so andrew comes up and he's like look at this buck in the back of my truck and was like, this is a dope thing, man. It's an this deer thing. And he goes, oh, it's antlers were gone. So this is December 13th. And that buck had already dropped his antlers as he was a three, three and a half year old buck. And this is South of me, a few miles. And he said, we pulled in to go hunting. And, and they, it's a lease that they have. And they pull in off the road and they're on the field road. And here laying next to the, the to the road is this buck. And he, he's just laying there shaking and, you know, drooling and the whole thing, and he, so he takes a video of it, and then he shoots it, and then he brings it up, and we test it. And I said to the crowd, "Hey, anybody want to lay a bet on this? I'll, pay, I'll lay a pay, you know paycheck on that this boy's positive." And um, there are people out there, you maybe even know the names of a couple of them, who would say, or certainly one of them, who would say, "CWD didn't kill that deer. That guy shooting it killed it." You know, I was like, "Well, wow, okay, so he should have let it lay there and suffer." Uh, is that what is that what they're getting at? Um, so yes, we're seeing that. Um, I have yet to see. I have yet to kill a deer on my farm that uh, stumbling around, drooling. So you know, I don't want to be hyperbolic about it. But I'm also on the northern edge of it. South of me, uh, less than ten miles, um, one of the in our still in our county. One of the CDEC um, members has called the warden three times. I've got a buck standing in my yard. Here's the picture. Shoot it. Three times. So, yes, it's happening. And you know, where are all the dead deer? Well, the other part of it is, is it's not like EHD, where you got a bunch of dead deer who are all, they're all thirsty because that's what he, part of what EHD does to them, and then they all die around the water. That doesn't mean that they all died at the same time. It's just that they all went to the same place to die, um, and deer don't do that. And I don't know if you go out in the woods at this time of the year. One, how hard would it be fo- to find a deer? You'd have to follow your nose to find a dead deer in the in the woods. I watched a, a deer disintegrate by the by the highway up here. I called the highway department and said, "Hey, there's a deer here," I, and I don't have a dumpster out at this point of the year. And um, well, they came up and they just dragged it off to the side of the road, so it wasn't sitting on. The, And I just watched it disintegrate. It was gone in less than two weeks. And part of that was scavengers. Part of it was just rot and all of that. So how fast does, you know, nature reclaim those sort of things as well. So um, if you don't have it, you don't want it. If you do have it, you want as little as possible. Act accordingly. That is not to say that you shouldn't be engaged with the, with the, whatever your DNR is called, your Department of Natural Resources is called there and engage in all that and understand what it is that they're they're doing and look at the research because, man, we're still learning. We know a hell of a lot more about CWD than we did 20 years ago. And, uh, you know, when we're still learning about it. Anecdotally, the data is following the same experience that I had. So on the front edge of it, it was younger deer who were first testing because those are the ones who were getting kicked out of or leaving you know in search of new territory leaving the hot hotter zones and moving out right the younger you're just like people right the younger people are the ones who move out the old folks stay in the same place and uh you know and and as a result that's what we see uh and studies have shown this too that that's how the disease is being spread it's being uh growing in prevalence in a in in the area where it's already established by high population because the more just like other diseases right the more opportunity there is to be um, exposed to it the more opportunity is that that you're going to get sick um and that's so those are the two things so you have to act a little you have to think a little bit differently and and um i you know at the end of the day just keep going deer hunting get your deer tested be smart about it uh we're still having a hell of a time having, we're having a great time deer hunting on our farm Good. do you yeah. do you eat those cwd positive deer I do not. Okay. Yeah. And I, here's what else. Can I say something about that? Yeah. Um, everybody's got to make that choice. Every deer that gets shot on our farm gets tested because I want to know, right? I don't tell people, mm, don't eat it. You know, it's entirely up to you. If you personally want to eat it, I would have some questions about. Uh, and, and one of the things I do say is, don't, if you are decided to eat it, you eat it. And don't um, unknowingly, at least, feed it to anybody else and you know if that stuff would kill you i'd be dead by now you hear all that kind of thing and it's like that deer um on my instagram you got to go back a ways and like maybe i repost it but um that deer is wasted away it's you know sick it's drooling it's all of that it's got the same disease that that deer that looks healthy has and the studies have shown that it's in the meat so you're making those decisions it's never but at the same time cwd is you know the prion-based disease has never jumped to humans that we know of you know there are changes in prions and there's i mean i follow this stuff all the time i'm just not one i'm not taking that chance and two um i wouldn't make that decision for anybody else especially a kid because again it's a long you know there's a long arc of this disease so you want to make that decision for yourself great Um, and i no judgment for me i'm just not doing it here's actually how we're handling it in in our, how I'm handling it on our farm. So of those um, seven deer that tested positive last year, four of them went to the donation program. We didn't know they were positive, right? But they were older deer. I butchered two deer for myself last year. They were fawns. So they were deer of the year, right? So they're six months old. Um, Way less like wasting disease or at least way less likely for it to show up because there's a whole other discussion about that that we don't have time for right now but just because it says it's not detected doesn't mean it's negative that's there's two very different things right but so our the folks hunting with me who are concerned about that i'm like you know go ahead shoot your buck hunt, you know and i i want everybody to feel their buck tag if they can um but man, when it comes to keeping those those young ones taste real good too, you know? And, and because we have so we, one, we have so many deer, we have all those tags um, go ahead and and take a couple of them if you want. And so, yeah, we killed 40 deer last year.
0: Wonderful. And one of the things you talked about there with the research and stuff, we had Lindsay Thomas jr. On a a little while back and uh, you know, it sounds like there really are, is a lot of good research continuing to, to happen and learning new things. So I want to end on a positive note though, Doug, let's, uh, let's talk about the sharing the land program. And I know this is something that's near and dear to your heart. Uh, I'm going to be honest with you. I, I looked it up before our, our conversation here just to get, get interested, but I kind of like it. it. It looks really cool. So
2: do you want to give the listeners a quick rundown on on what that program's like? Sure. I'll try to um, real quick. So sharing the land.com, uh, easy enough to find it. Um, it's based on the, um, a couple of things, you know, sort of this like, right. it's based on uh, something that Elder Leopold did back in the day called the Riley game cooperative. And it was simply he and his buddies um, improving the habitat on some land that they didn't own, but working with a farmer to improve the habitat on his land um, in exchange for the opportunity to hunt it. And pretty simple concept. And when I was a kid, we could hunt wherever the hell we wanted to around here. Nobody, nobody, you know, nobody cared. No trespassing signs were something that didn't happen. But land also wasn't purchased for hunting. It wasn't purchased for recreation. As I think I mentioned before, 65% of our county is now owned by people who don't live here. Not, It's not a value judgment. It's just kind of the way it is. And some of them bought that land for hunting. So you can understand if you paid a bunch of money for a piece of property, you're not going to let a bunch of other people on there. Most of the, and some of those folks are my clients, my land management clients. And what I notice about them is they tend to share their property with people that they know, friends, family, that kind of stuff. And those traditions continue. But as we know in hunter recruitment, there are two, the two biggest impediments to getting people involved with hunting is a place to go and somebody to go with. And sharing the land is about, um, you know, connecting landowners and access seekers, um, with conservation in mind so if you look at it if you go on the website you'll see the venn diagram there's people there's land and then there's the ethic and in the middle of that is sharing the land so there are plenty of programs like voluntary public access and the walk-in programs and all of that that are funded by the government essentially the government rents your land from leases your land from you so anybody can go on it in our area and i don't know what it's like there i mean i know out west that people are you know they've got ten thousand acres and so it's very different well here 40s and 80s are more common um and the voluntary public access properties tend to not be liked very much by neighbors because as the one guy said to me damn it doug it seems like every day i got a new neighbor over there and you and you know and you you hit a deer especially archery and it runs into his property and then next thing you know you got people knocking on the door or not who are just going after it in Wisconsin, if you're on somebody's property without permission, you're trespassing. There's no game recovery law or anything like that where you can pursue game because people screwed that up years ago. Anyway, sharing land takes this, in those programs, I'm sorry. So voluntary public access, walk-in access. We know what the landowner gets out of it. They get paid. We know what the access seekers get out of it. They get to go on land that they don't have They're just going in to take something off of it right? They're going in for extraction. My question is, is what's the land get out of that? And then where's the, where's the education part of that? One of the cool parts of um, sharing the land is like the folks who are my uh, cooperators, we call them, they've really gotten to know our property. They've put some sweat equity into it, but they've really gotten to know our property too, because they're doing work on it. It's like, it's theirs, right? Um, it's, it's not our turn. It's their turn. I don't know. Um, uh, It's not my turn. It's their turn. And, and that really is a part of, I think it's important for people to understand when they're asking the favor of, of access to pursue game, that it takes a lot to manage a property, especially in the Midwest where we are, where land has been manipulated and managed hopefully managed but certainly manipulated for a long time by folks and if you were to uh just abandon it and let nature take its course well it'd be full of invasive species and um you know just as as a, a forester said to me well doing nothing is a management plan it's just not ever-. um so one of the things that most of my clients have said to me, landowner clients have said to me is, boy, owning a piece of that, because most of them tend to be new landowners. And they're like, wow, you know, it's a lot of work. And, you know, I come up here for the weekend. Sometimes I just want to hang out, but there's like all of this stuff that you got to do. And I was like, and that's why I don't bow hunt very much. it's just, it's hard to sit in a tree going, oh, I got all this stuff I got to do. So you want some help with that? There are people who are willing to put equity, sweat equity into a property for the opportunity and you know because landowners want there are there are some landowners who want to share their land but well who do i decide do i let on there just the guy who comes and knocks on the door and you can listen to mark kenyon and those guys talk about permissions and how you get access and all of that and of course leasing is more and more popular and you know that's okay too because that works for some people um but who they are and that they're good people. Well, how do you find that out? Part of it is, is having a relationship with them and having a, a having a conversation with them. And so what we're really doing with sharing the land is um, developing this, taking Leopold's land ethic and his Riley game cooperative idea and bringing it forward to the, to the 21st century. Um, and you can, you can look that up on sharingland.com and we only put the website up I don't know, in March and um, it's a bicycle that we're, I like to say we're building this bicycle as we ride it. So um, if you, we're getting a lot of access seekers from across the country and we're getting more landowners now, but it's probably 10 to one. So it's, you know, that's, but if you're a landowner and you're interested in getting some help on your land um, we're, we're providing resources. We're, we're giving examples. We've got sponsors and um, you know it's a, it, it, it's not for everybody, but I think it's a it's a great opportunity for people to to continue on their conservation journey, become conservationists, and um, learn about land and learn about hunting and and you know and all kinds of access. So. Yeah. And I'm on the website here
0: now. And just to give people an idea. So basically you go on and you can choose if you're a landowner or if you're a somebody looking for access. Right. And then you you fill out essentially a resume. It's like Indeed for uh, hunting. Right. And or. You know, finding somebody to, to hunt on your land, and you can say, you know, I've got a, a strong back, weak mind. I'm good at prescribed burns. I'm good at whatever, and and you know your background, and then the the landowner can go find you in your region and say, oh, I need that prescribed burn, and I need that stuff moved. So maybe I'll talk to this guy. Is that how essentially how it works?
2: Yeah, that's essentially how it works. We're we're discovering on the back end that we need to be building a a sorting mechanism that we didn't have in place. We've been doing it manually. So it takes, you know, it takes a lot of time right now, but that conservation resume is a cool idea. Right. I mean, it's something that you can, that can change over time. As you develop, you can come in and, and, and redo it. Um, we're working with uh, right now, we're working with Onyx to do some mapping kind of cool mapping stuff. That'll help a, uh, access seeker go, well, gee, I'm, I'm in, I'm in. uh wherever you know ohio and oh there's a a sharing land i'm not sure that we have any landowners in ohio i know we've got some access seekers um and you see that in whatever county there's a some land and it doesn't just sort of like the lease sites where it doesn't tell you exactly where the property is but it shows you the property and then what we're trying to build there is taking that cooperating land profile that you see on there and that'll be on there so that people can look at it and go oh yeah i'd be interested in that property or no i'll pass so that selection sort of starts happening as opposed to um my assistant and i and we're we're you know we're not making money at this we're breaking even um with our sponsors and thank goodness for onyx and vortex and savage arms and Nichols lures and um uh, map my ranch is another one and guide fitter and it's just great that these people are you know getting behind this thing and helping us pay for the costs of 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 building this um, and and we're gonna be build, building content and it's just, the whole thing is going to be built out. but this idea that a that a, an access seeker can look at a piece of property and go, yeah that's a place i'd be interested in versus me saying well here's an opportunity this you know so there can be some self selection there and um that's what we're working through on the back end right now it's been pretty popular if you're a landowner and you're interested in this um certainly go on there or, or reach out to us via email and it's it's all on on the website um the hardest the hardest thing to for us to do is get enough landowners who are who are interested in it um but boy, the ones so far have been really happy with it. And as we progress through this first year, there we'll be telling stories and and uh, producing content and, and whatnot. That'll explain it all. And the idea is that it'll be here for the long. It's a model that people will be able to be to, will be able to follow.
0: And just to be very clear, it is even though you're based in Wisconsin, this is not just Wisconsin. We there is you know you can choose Ohio and the different tabs. So uh, anybody in Ohio that's listening, uh, definitely something that you want to check out
2: so yeah we've got oh i'm sorry
1: i say so how's it work so i'm an access seeker andrew's a landowner so if if i'm signed up so is it just facilitating contact between andrew and i or if i see that andrew has property in in uh chicago or whatever i can just go in and hunt that place chicago's like a terrible reference but uh so i just (laughs) go say i don't know what kind of yeah i I was thinking i was going to say where we live and i was like i don't know how to do that but um can I, no. I mean, so can I just go in or do I, I no. get a written permission? I, I facilitate contact. Is that we what this have is?
2: A, yeah. Really what we're doing is facilitating contact. Okay. So I'll give you an example. Um, uh, I just sent um, four conservation resumes to a landowner who's looking for one person. And so I looked at the people in that area who had s- submitted a conservation resume and I'm like, Oh, well, here's kind of one of each, right? He wanted to, I'm interested in maybe a new, new hunter. I might be interested in somebody who's really, and he kind of went through the process. He goes, boy, it'd be cool for me to take out a new hunter, but I really do need more help with someone who's really experienced with some of the land management stuff. And so if it was just about land management, I would take this person. If it was just about taking a new hunter, I would take that person. I said, well, maybe do part-time with the two of them. And then the other two, I, he just um, actually knew one of them. And he's like, Oh, and, And she'll probably be coming out here from time to time anyway. So he went from, I was like, wait a minute, you just said you wanted one person. He goes, well, or three part-time people. And that's kind of, that's some of the beauty too, right? I mean, because people sort of center it around um, deer hunting. And it's not, I mean, we have people who are just interested in foraging and they just like to have permission to be able to go somewhere and they're willing to do, you know, something for that. Um, But so the idea is that you submit that, but no, you cannot, um, at at this point, you won't even, you're not even aware of where the properties are. When you fill out your conservation resume, You'll get a thank you and say, and it also kind of says something to the effect that um, understand that we don't have landowners anywhere, but thanks for submitting and everywhere. So but keep, you know, keep in touch. We'll send your resume to, to appropriate places. Um, eventually, we'll we'll get out of that part of the business like that they'll just self-select and a, a landowner will go oh here's some people that are available why don't i contact them because that's that's the relationship they have to have we actually have an agreement that we um that that's available for them to use you know it's like here's what here's what i'm willing to give the access i'm willing to give here's what i'm looking for in return um and then there's a hold harmless part of it um you know like for obvious liability issues we suggest that landowners um deal with in fact i have a call coming up with an insurance company who does just outdoor insurance you know like leasing insurance and that kind of stuff and um that they because like on my farm um we i have a additional rider for hunting activities on the farm and it really is not that expensive i mean it's a few hundred dollars and okay I'd rather have that, you know, we have liability insurance, but we also have some that's specific to hunting. Um, And you reduce liability anyway, because that's always number one question landowners. Well, what about liability? And I'm like, well, you're never going to remove it completely, right? But if you know the person and you have a relationship with them and they sign an agreement and you sign that agreement, you're eliminating a lot of that. And then you have insurance in place that's going to cover some of that. And then in Wisconsin, and I don't know whether it's true in Ohio or not, but we've got a recreational access law that as long as you're not um, receiving, there's a ceiling on how much value you're receiving, that you're protected from liability because you granted access, Um, which you would think wouldn't be necessary, but we're a little bit of a litigious society. So, um, but when you think about that, Well, hunting leases are the same thing, right? And so, actually, if you look, NDA is a great example. In fact, it's their insurance company that I'm talking, uh, who provides their insurance, hunting lease insurance. It's this, it's the same company that I'm, I'm going to be talking to and figure, or that we're talking to and trying to figure out. Well, given, I'm going to give them the opportunity to sponsor, of course. But is that will this work for theirs, or would they hone their insurance so that it would work for this as well? As opposed to a hunting club or a lease where you're very specific about it. But this is all very specific as well. Um, my insurance company's like, yeah, no problem. They were like, you know, as far as having the additional rider for liability while they're hunting. Um, so, you know, you, you, you're you never going to eliminate it completely. but And I will tell you this, I've been doing this for several years now. And I've had people that I've like, had to say, well, you know, it's been really nice having you here but you can't come back. You're coming. Yeah. I mean, you're going to have some of that, right. But it's very different than wide open access. You don't know who's there. And, um, uh, you know, there's a respect in a relationship as a result, the one person that I said goodbye to he and I are still friends and he knows, I mean, he screwed up and he knew, knew it. And I don't have, you know, you don't get a second chance with some of that stuff. Right. Um, and uh, because, you know, as I told him, well, it, what he did was pretty egregious and doesn't matter what it was. But um, but I said, if I allowed you back and it happened again and somebody did get hurt this time, what's the first thing that the attorney for the other side would say? Well, Mr. Duran, have you had experience like that with this person before? And, I, you know, it's a valuable piece of property and I'm only 20% owner of it and all that I have to protect that stuff i mean i'd love to have this guy back but i, I just can't right you know
1: yeah.
2: it sounds like a wonderful program
0: doug i appreciate your time that you've uh given us today it's been fascinating i think we could talk for a lot lot longer but um do you want to give the listeners a real quick rundown if they don't know or follow you already where they can find you and everything
2: i appreciate that yeah um i'm pretty simple uh on instagram it's at doug durin d-o-u-g-d-u-r-e-n um uh, Facebook, it's uh, Doug Duran, uh, it's not ours, it's just our turn. is the public page. Um, my website is www.dgdurn.com. I mean it ain't hard. <laughs> and um, somebody told me once in marketing you got to make it simple, man. And then uh, sharing the land is sharing land.com. And those, those two, my website and that website are tied together, but at some point Doug Duran's not going to be around anymore. And I want sharing the land to, to, to move forward. And um, right now it's a dot com, So it is a quote unquote business, as I said, which is not a, not a, a, a profitable one. Um, eventually we've been looking at, do we become a, a nonprofit or what? And, um, the analogy maybe i already said it we're we're building this bicycle as we're riding it so um that's just in the spirit of all of this understand that we're figuring a lot of this out as we go to so uh, but understand that we're trying to what the spirit of it is and i think if you go on there and look at it we i think we've explained it pretty well on the basic website that we have up there right now it's great better than I have it here in our conversation anyway. No.
1: Doug, thank you so much.
2: This has been really good. Yep. Take care, Doug. Appreciate it. You bet. Thanks, fellas. Yep. Bye.
0: When you're in the zone, you need to be focused. Bring your A-game with Starbucks Double Shot Energy. Packed with B-vitamins, guarana,
1: and ginseng, Starbucks Double Shot Energy is the perfect pick-me-up. And it comes in delicious flavors, including vanilla, mocha, white chocolate, coffee, and their newest flavor, caramel.
0: Own the day with Starbucks Double Shot Energy. Available online as well as at grocery stores, convenience stores, and gas stations nationwide.